Well, this is special. Uh, it's, it's, it's really neat to be here uh, to see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, it's nice uh, when you've been away from someplace for a while and you come back and you see some new faces too. And so uh, hopefully during the luncheon or sometime today we'll get to meet some of you that uh, you probably don't feel new anymore, but to us you're new. <laughs> um, it was uh, 2008, almost six years ago, that, uh, that, that you sent us out, commissioned us to, to plant Cornerstone Church in Plastow. And um, I was uh, excited, kind of humbled, um, but excited when uh, Pastor Dan called me and asked if, if I would come uh, share with you guys today and, um, and even give maybe a little update about the church. Um, so I'm going to do that. Um, I, I want to introduce my family for those who maybe haven't seen them. So my wife is here. Uh, our three daughters are sitting with my wife and my son Tyler, as Pastor Dan said, is probably somewhere else in the room. There he is in the very back, of course, yeah. <laughs> Have your wife stand up Yeah, you can go ahead. <laughs> All right. That's Melissa, Tyler, Haley, Whitney, Rachel. Uh, our oldest son, Chris, is away at school. Uh, he's down at uh, Liberty University. Um, he'll be back. Uh, this spring and is getting married this June. Uh, our next son, Joshua, is um, in the U.S. Navy now. He's, um, he's training right now to become a hospital corpsman, and, um, and he's working hard to qualify for, uh, for the Special Operations Forces. So um, that's just an update on our family. Um, I want to congratulate you guys, uh, and, and again, it's all of us. We've all been a part of it. Uh, those, most of you, uh, save Pastor Stringer and maybe a few others that are here today, weren't here 50 years ago. Um, but all of us have been a part of what's gone on over the last 50 years. And um, all of us have shared in seeing God work and, um, and just being able to enjoy that. Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, over the holidays, spent some time with Pastor Stringer, and I can't remember the count, but he, he, he gave me the count of, of people who have been through this church and are now around the world, and uh, it's incredible. Um, Pastor Dan read uh, Philippians 3, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning. That's the uh, passage that I want to I want to look at with you today, and um, before I do that, what I wanted to do, I thought would be helpful, is give you an illustration. I want to, I want to put in your mind a picture. Uh, part of what I'm trying to do today is, is I want for us to share in the Word of God. Um, I also want to to try to give you some sense of what it's been like for us um, to, to leave fellowship and to go and to begin a new church and, um, and to try to, to, try to uh, start a new work and, and uh, lead that work. Um, and I want for us, most of all, just to, just to worship the Lord. I want for us to, to see Christ clearly and rejoice in Him. Um, so what I thought would be good is to look at this passage in Philippians 3. I've selected the passage because I think it's, it's going to convey to you um, at least some of the sense of what it's been like for us uh, to go through this experience of starting a new church. But I think this, um, before, I, before we get to the word, I want to use this, this illustration for you. Um, when, when we left here in 2008, um, I was not a full-time pastor, and, uh, and I didn't become a full-time pastor when we did that, I've, I've uh, before that time and continuing since that time, I've been involved in, uh, in architectural design and construction. Um, in 2008, when we left here to go start Cornerstone Church, um, my business partner and I also began work on, on building this project. Uh, I want to show it to you because it's, it's, it's uh, one of the most challenging projects that I've ever undertaken. Um, this is a, just a big, beautiful addition on the back of somebody's house. And this is what it looks like inside. Uh, indoor pool addition, many other features that went along with this. Um, 
And uh, this is what it looks like from the outside. I want you to look at this picture carefully because uh, you'll notice this kind of this angular roof and these broad windows and then to the, to the right of that is sort of this tower looking structure. All of that is brand new uh, on this edition. And I'm going to show you a picture in just a minute um, of what it looked like before we did that. Um, and right now what you can see is, is in the distance you can see the treetops. This is perched up on a hillside with a beautiful view. And um, it's a, just a fantastic place uh, to do something like this if you've, got the, if you've got the means to do it and if that's what you like. Um, but this is what it looked like before we did it. And I think that's a pretty dramatic transformation. Um, it's a picture of me standing with the owner uh, when we first met him and just talking about what he had in mind, looking at the architectural plans that he had had drawn up and looking at this space where we were supposed to do this. And it was a great idea and we were ex excited about the prospect of building this, this, this beautiful new addition. And, um, and yet we had to discover some things about the ground that we were standing on right there. Uh, this, was, this, this house was the last house that was built in the neighborhood up at the top of a cul-de-sac uh, at the top of this hillside. And what the developer had done as he, as he created these lots and put the road in is he took all the fill and all the junk and he just, he, just, he just bulldozed it over the back of this hill. And when the builder built the house, they, they, they did a good job. They got down to virgin soil and, and they built the, the, the foundation for the house on good soil. But the backyard itself was not good. It was, it was rubble that had been piled in and it was full of voids. And what was going to happen over time, uh, over years, was that those voids would, would eventually fill in, that the, the soils would sink around. And anything that you had built on top of that uh, would eventually crack and, and move and shift. Well, this was discovered by, by boring down into the hillside and, and finding out what was down in there. This had to be dealt with before any of their dreams could be realized. This had to be. Uh, this had to be changed. And so what we did was we, we dug out this entire hillside. We dug down 30 feet deep and pulled the whole thing back, uh, everything except what the house itself was standing on. And we had to start in, uh, in about two-foot increments to, to pile in good fill, good gravel that could be compacted with a steamroller. And so we did that two feet by two feet by two feet and built this whole hillside all the way back up. Here's a picture in the middle of that process. Eventually, uh, we built it up. We got to the place where we could finally place our footings and begin the construction of the, the dream addition. And um, the reason I show you all this is because in a lot of ways, this is what it's been like for us to go through the experience of leaving the security of an established church uh, with, with solid leaders, with good friends, with, with all the resources we were used to, and get out on our own and be exposed. Find out that, that the, the things that we hoped to build this new church on, which was ourselves, we hoped to build them on our own gifts from the Lord. We hoped to build them on our own maturity that we had obtained through the years of, of Christian living. And what we found out uh, shortly after we got started was that um, in many ways, we weren't the people we thought we were. Um, this was a hard lesson to learn. Uh, and it's, it's been going on uh, really ever since. Um, and and it's, it's been a painful process at a lot of turns. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, the, the, what God has brought forth out of the people that, that uh, we've been together with for these past six years um, has been amazing, it's been enlightening, it's been, um, it's been satisfying. It's not ultimately satisfying, it's still not ultimately what we hope to build, um, but the process of discovery and of finding solid ground that we could really build on has been good. So that's the theme that I wanna impose. Uh, forgive me, I'm gonna try to be careful with the, the passage for the most part here that we have before us. I'm not gonna expound on every little detail of this passage, but I want to be faithful to the passage, but I am going to impose over it this, this, 
this idea, this illustration of building on solid ground. And that's how I want to talk about this. So as we go through Philippians 3, and we'll be done with the slides, and we can shut this down in just a second, but this is sort of the outline of how I want to talk today. First of all, um, there's a warning in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, a warning. But beware of careless developers. Beware of people who, who want to build so as to leave voids and shifting soils. Uh, number two, uh, looks are deceiving. We have to discover that. Uh, we see that in the Word of God, and we have to discover it about ourselves. And lastly, uh, what we see in the passage is, is, is from the Apostle Paul in his life, and for us, too, that, that it's possible for us to find solid ground. And when, when, we, when we do and when we focus on that, we can really begin to build. So um, with that, let's, let's take a look at, at Philippians chapter 3. Paul himself, I think, had gone through a similar experience. He went through a time of rediscovering what really counted in his life. And um, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, he shared some of those lessons with us so that we could learn from them and, um, and learn to be the kind of builder that he was. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you again for this, this chance for us this morning to be gathered together in your name, uh, to put aside the things that would otherwise separate us and... and the things that would, uh, that would irritate us about one another and to j just find uh, in one another the new life that you have worked uh, through Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to celebrate that new life. We want to, we want to discover uh, what it means day after day. We pray that you'd um, use your word this morning to teach us that and um, help us to continue to, to grow, Lord. We pray for your kingdom that we would be able to focus on it and, and work with you uh, to build your kingdom on solid ground. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, in Philippians chapter 3, as I said, we get this warning. Uh, beware of careless developers. Uh, verse 1, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, this, this really, this exhortation to rejoice in the Lord, when you first read it, it doesn't really sound like a warning. It kind of sounds like Paul is just telling the Philippians, hey, be happy. Uh, let's, let's, you know, lift up your face. Be, be joyful. But it becomes clear um, that he's telling them, really, to rejoice in the Lord because he's concerned for something. Paul's not just encouraging them, he's actually warning them. He's, he's concerned that if they don't rejoice in the Lord, their spiritual safety is going to be at risk. That's why in the last part of verse 1, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Joy, if you've, many of you probably have, have been through the book of Philippians. Some of you maybe have, have never read it, but joy is, joy is a, a major theme in the book of Philippians. Um, but at this point, I don't think Paul is simply telling them that joy itself is the key to their spiritual welfare. He's saying something more specific. The key is not just joy. The key is what we rejoice in. We need to be careful, Paul says, to rejoice in the Lord. And this can't be taken for granted. It sounds familiar to most of us. If, if you've been coming here for any length of time and, and worshiping and singing hymns and, and reading scripture and fellowshipping with other believers, then the notion of rejoicing in the Lord isn't new to you. But it can't be taken for granted. Because every day, we're seeking our joy. Every day, we're looking for our happiness. We're pursuing it. And most, most times, with all our might, going after the things that we think are going to make us happy, it's key for us to know what's really going to make us happy. It's key for us to understand what we can rejoice in. And it can't be taken for granted that we rejoice in the Lord. I'm sure that 
Most of you believe that by trusting in Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross, you're going to be pardoned for your sins and you're going to be welcomed into heaven. But is that enough? Well, in some ways, yeah, that's enough. That's everything. But is it enough by itself to carry you through all your good and bad days? That distant thought of heaven, knowing that someday you'll, you'll end up there. Is that itself enough to guard your heart and your mind until you finally land there? Can merely understanding and agreeing with the gospel safeguard your Christian walk? Can it safeguard your Christian family or your Christian church? When he's writing about the spiritual safety of believers, Paul doesn't just say, trust in the Lord. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. That's how to be safe. And in the next couple of verses, he clarifies what he means by this. First of all, Paul gives the flip side of the warning. Uh, rejoice in the Lord is putting it in the positive. Uh, but now he's going to put it in the negative. In verse 2, he, he says some things that, that flip that around and help us to see uh, the, the ugly side of it. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul's warning is starting to become more clear. It's starting to become more pointed. He warns his readers about some dangerous characters. Uh, these guys that he's talking about, these dogs, they're bad actors. The reason that they pose a threat to the church is because they insidiously influence believers not to rejoice in the Lord. They do it subtly, but they do it with tragic consequences. So, who were these dogs? Who were these evildoers? Why were they hacking people up? Paul said they were mutilating the flesh. Well, he's exaggerating a little bit. He's trying to make a point. But what he's getting at is that these particular evildoers were Judaizers. Some of you have heard that term. You know what it means. Maybe you don't. Judaizers were the kind of Jewish Christians who demanded religious circumcision among Gentile converts. That's, that's specifically what they were after. These people, these Jewish Christians, these people who identified themselves with the Christian church early on, but still maintained their Jewish heritage, they would not even recognize a Gentile man as a genuine Christian unless and until he took the sign of circumcision in his foreskin and he committed to walking according to the whole law of Moses. And so these dogs, they, they robbed new believers of their joy by telling them that the Lord himself wasn't enough. They needed something else. Now, after warning them about the negative, Paul's going to Describe what it means to be the kind of people that rejoice in the Lord. How do, we, how do we not be, how do we not give in to the dogs? How do we not give in to evildoers who would rob us of our joy and, and cause us to look at something besides the Lord? And the first thing he does, and I think this is really interesting, is he sort of steals the Judaizers' thunder. He commandeers their favorite issue, and he points out that it doesn't really even belong to them. In verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision. Your translation may, see, may say, We are the true circumcision. The circumcision was basically an old covenant requirement. That's kind of summarizing it, but, but in short, it was an Old Testament thing. It was, it was meant for the Hebrews. The old covenant was God's agreement with the Hebrew people that he would be their God, they would obey his laws. That was the agreement. He would make them a nation, and then they would be careful to keep themselves distinct from the other nations by worshiping him and by staying holy. The Old Covenant served a lot of practical purposes. There were a number of things that, that affected their everyday life, and it was for their good. But ultimately, it wasn't intended by God to be the final solution. 
Part of the purpose of the Old Covenant was to supply a bunch of pictures, pictures that would make the New Covenant easier to understand and believe. The Old Covenant, along with a lot of its features, it was left ultimately unsatisfying so that God's people would hunger for the New Covenant. It was, it was a pining that lasted for centuries, but eventually the New Covenant came. God had promised the New Covenant long ago, and he, he promised it early on. In fact, even while he was still delivering the Old Covenant to the people, Moses told them that they would fail to keep it. Imagine that. Here's, here's the deal. God will do this, you do this. Now you're guaranteed to fail. You're, it, you're bound to drop the ball. But he also told them how God would eventually be compassionate to them. They were going to experience God's judgment for their failure to keep the covenant. They would suffer violence. They would be scattered all over the earth because of their disobedience. But the new covenant promises that God would regather them. He would do something truly amazing with them. And the way Moses described it is that God would actually do a new work, a work that would be inside their hearts, and it would radically change them, and it would enable them to truly, actually live out this covenant with God, to live in agreement with God and to satisfy him. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, that book where, where Moses gave out the covenant again to the people, he said, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This, this is the true circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. In the middle of giving out the old covenant, Moses foretold of the new covenant, and he described it in terms of a spiritual circumcision that would free people's hearts to love God with everything. And they would long for it by that time because they would, they would be sick of their own failures. They would be sick of, of the deadness of their own efforts. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul described the new covenant circumcision of the heart like this. He said, in him, that's in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what about the Judaizers, the guys that, that demanded physical circumcision? Why was Paul so critical of them? Why was, he, why was he so hard? Why did he call them such mean names? Jeremiah, prophet, chapter 9, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. God commanded the circumcision of the flesh, but it was only a picture of what was meant to be done in their hearts. And until they were circumcised in the heart, they stood condemned. So the new covenant has arrived with Jesus. And people who insist on rejoicing in the old covenant remain uncircumcised in their hearts. Paul was compassionate. He was sorry enough for ignorant Jews, but he had no tolerance for evildoers who actively pushed the old covenant on the new covenant church. And so with deep conviction, Paul grabs the label of circumcision away from those who are only circumcised in the flesh. And he joyfully says of New Testament Christians, we're the ones, we're the ones who are truly circumcised. We're the ones who truly rejoice in the Lord who circumcised our hearts. In Philippians 3.3, he goes on to further describe what this looks like. He says, for we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Paul says, it's not what we do with our flesh that empowers our worship. 
Pastor Chris said this morning. It's the gracious enabling of, of the living Holy Spirit. It's what God does to ignite our hearts, to empower us to live for him and to draw near to him and to enjoy him. Most of us, we, we understand that. But many of us only understand it as sort of a, it's the right answer. When we're in Sunday school and somebody asks a question like this, we know what we're supposed to say. But it's not necessarily what thrills our hearts. Paul's warning them, this needs to thrill your heart. To see the calloused overgrowth of our hearts and then to see God come and mercifully cut away by the Spirit so that we can really feel and love and relate to God, that's what it means to, to be able to rejoice in the Lord. That's what he's calling us to. He continues on in verse 3. He says that to rejoice in the Lord means to glory in Christ Jesus. Have you ever seen somebody in their glory? Seen, seen what, the, what, what makes them really come alive? The glory is, is, it makes them beam. It's what makes them feel complete. A middle-aged man, he could feel like he's in his glory when he's able to reproduce the athletic uh, achievements of his youth. You might see a young teenage girl in her glory when her friends squeal about her perfect hair and her makeup and her, her clothes. Maybe an immature Christian is in their glory when others praise them for their improved church attendance or, or for their eager volunteering, for their new Bible reading. Uh, I'd be willing to bet you there's a church planting pastor somewhere who's in his glory because he believes people are attending his church because of his wonderful preaching. All kinds of things that, that, that make our hearts come alive and make us beam with joy all kinds of things that are glory to us. But Paul says that the new covenant Christians are in their glory when they remember who Jesus is to them and when they remember who they are in Jesus. To glory in Christ Jesus isn't to admire how wonderful I've become since I became a Christian. To glory in Christ Jesus is to rejoice that the, the ugly, the embarrassing, condemning record of my sins has absolutely evaporated at the victorious announcement of the death of Jesus in his victorious resurrection. To glory in Christ Jesus is not to defend my righteous record. To glory in Christ is to confess my mistakes Confess my weaknesses, confess my foolishness, and then to confess even more emphatically that Jesus is the one who's utterly sufficient to rescue me from all of that. To glory in Christ Jesus isn't to occasionally, grudgingly admit that, yeah, I guess I need a Savior too. To glory in Christ Jesus is to embrace the self-incriminating truth of my sin every day and then to rejoice in the reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The last thing that Paul does in verse 3 to describe what it means to rejoice in the Lord and to be truly circumcised is to state what it excludes if we're going to rejoice in the Lord, if we're going to glory in Christ Jesus, if we're going to worship by the Spirit of God, then here's what we cannot do. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Look, it's easy. It's easy to put confidence in the flesh. In fact, I'd say it's natural. It's who we are. It's what we're bound to do unless we're reminded to rejoice in the Lord. The scriptures don't write to shame us. They write to, to correct us, to help us, to, to instruct us. Our doctrinal statement, it might declare that we believe in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Our doctrinal statement might say that we believe in the all-sufficient atonement of the Son of God, but what's going to really tell the story is our life. Not our statement, but our life. Our life 
is going to tell even louder and more incessantly if we put confidence in the flesh. All of us know that we shouldn't put confidence in the flesh. But we do it. If we put confidence in the flesh, it's going to show up every single day. We'll shame our children rather than instruct them. We'll argue rather than pray. We'll spend our way to happiness rather than believe God's promises. We'll try to accomplish the righteousness of God in our own anger. We'll be quick to speak, slow to listen. We'll substitute our own thoughts and ideas for the word of God. We'll be plagued with anxiety rather than gratitude. And we'll complain rather than hope in all things. All sorts of ways that, that putting confidence in the flesh will crop up in our lives and it will, it will betray itself. The good news about Jesus' saving work, it's not meant just as our ticket to a better afterlife. It's not just our way to get to heaven. It's actually meant to free us from relying on all the dead things that prop us up in this life. When we're rejoicing in the Lord, those things, they're not going to inspire any confidence. We'll see all our needs met in Christ. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul urges us for our own spiritual safety to rejoice in the Lord, not just to trust in him, but to rejoice in him. He warns us about the evildoers who are going to try to pry our confidence away from Christ. They're careless developers. They want to fill our backyards with the shifting sand of fleshly confidence. Paul's not just concerned about how we think we're getting to heaven someday, but even how we think we're going to get through today. We have to find our joy and our strength supplied by the life-giving spirit, and we have to find our identity and our worth established in the cross of Jesus. Paul learned this in his own life. He had to go through this. Uh, I am going through this. I, I'm, I'm recognizing it. We all do. If, if, if we intend to grow in the Lord, if we intend to, to not just get to heaven to someday, but actually know and love our God, then we have to go through this too, all of us. And looks are deceiving. That's the second point. Paul is not trying to shame and humiliate Christians for their fleshly tendencies. He himself totally gets it. He understands why we might try to live by the flesh instead of by the Spirit. And even do our Christian ministry in fleshly ways. Paul, Paul knows. In verse 4 he said, Though I myself, I, I might have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In a lot of ways, we're all pretty amazing people. And Paul was an amazing person too. We're, we're made in God's image. We show that. We, we display the, the glory of God in all of our natural abilities. We can often accomplish an awful lot when we set our mind to something. Paul had achieved a pretty good standing in the religious realm of his day. And he describes it. He talks about his, his, how he met up to the standards of the law. He talks about how he, he had the best lineage and, and, um, and everything. He's, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Gen Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Among the Jews, he was one of the best. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He, he kept the law to the strictest degree. He even added laws to the law. As to zeal... There was nobody that matched him. He, he went so far as to persecute the church because they stood against the law. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless, or so he said. So he thought. That's what it looked like, but looks are deceiving. To the trained religious eye, Paul looked pretty good, but he found out himself that looks can be deceiving. Back in 2008, that that construction client of mine 
thought that the last lot on the cul-de-sac with the awesome hilltop views looked pretty good. They thought it would be the perfect place to build their indoor pool, but they were sobered when they learned that their dramatic backyard wasn't suitable for building. And in the same way, Paul had to learn that all his religious pedigree couldn't carry him through his Christian life, let alone in a Christian ministry. He said in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Um, maybe you've had this kind of crisis in your life already. And if you have, I, I'm sure that you were met with the grace of God. But Paul, at some point, faced this crisis. He had to look over his impressive resume and he had to recognize that as long as he kept flaunting it, he was going to get in the way of people seeing Jesus. And what Paul says here indicates that at some point he had to think carefully about all his, all his own personal qualities and his achievements. He had to honestly evaluate them and discover what it was that he truly gloried in. When the truth became evident, Paul did what the Holy Spirit enabled him to do. He, he counted the cost and he decided to ditch his own qualifications so that Jesus Christ could become the main feature of his life. If you've ever been through this kind of experience, you know how devastating it can be to count your life's work as loss. But it requires that we truly die to ourselves. And that's what Jesus called us to. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus wasn't just calling people to go live in dangerous places on the mission field when he said that. He was talking about giving up your glory, giving up what you rejoice in, and grabbing hold of Jesus instead. All of us need to stop being so infatuated with our own image. There's things that we do at home and at work. There's things that we do even here in church that are really just designed by us to make us look like we're holding our own. And we need to let go of those things because they're not worth anything and they can't be built on. We have to come to grips with the fact that when we live out our Christianity on the basis of how it looks, we rob ourselves of any real grace and power. We distance ourselves from the joy of the Lord and our souls are going to end up getting really parched, dry. And if we actually manage to win the approval of other people by living this way, we ultimately sacrifice any lasting reward from the Lord. It's all we get is the praise of men. We can look good on the surface, but looks can be deceiving. If our confidence is in our own accomplishments and we're glorying in our own abilities, then the ground beneath us is eventually going to sink. It's going to shift. And our foundations are start going to showing the cracks. We're not going to hold up. Um, some of you have experienced this. You, you've, you've, you've learned the hard way. And, and the, the beauty of that is that even for that, Jesus went to the cross, even, even, even for the sin of, of living the Christian life in the flesh. Well, <clears throat> that's the hard part. Paul goes on to talk about finding solid ground. Um, he tells us explicitly in verses 8 through 11 what it was that he found that he could build on. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
When Paul says that he suffered the loss of all things and he counts them as rubbish, he's, he's essentially saying that he's, he's no longer going to try to build his life and his ministry on top of a landfill or on top of a manure pile. Instead, Paul's future is going to be built on the, the rock-solid ground of knowing Christ. Um, for Paul, knowing Christ is, is it's, it's rich. Um, it's meaningful. For Paul, knowing Christ doesn't just mean that he's agreed with the message of salvation and now he's, he's like on the good side. It's not what he means when he says, I want to know Christ. What Paul means is something that is actually deeply personal. Paul calls him Christ Jesus, my Lord. And to him, that means sharing in Jesus' life, even sharing in Jesus' death. It means sharing in the, in the hardship of Jesus as well as experiencing the power and the glory of Jesus. Paul passionately believes that there's nothing more solid, nothing more worthwhile in life than to die to himself in order to gain the life of Christ. And there's something at the heart of this passion. There's something that, that, that has really begun to make Paul tick. There's something that has be, be, begun to be his glory. And it's something specific. Something particular, a particular reality that is the absolute bedrock that Paul knows he can build on. When you scrape away everything else that you know about the life and the ministry of Paul, you dig down to that which is rock bottom for him in his convictions, you're going to find that he's learned to violently reject any notion of his own righteousness. That's at the core. Paul is done defending his own record. He's through with hoping to stand in his own merit. He no longer believes it's possible or even desirable to win the approval of God or man on the basis of his own performance or his personal qualities. Of all the places in the world that Paul could look for solid ground, he has claimed this one narrow little way to build everything on. And it's the righteousness from God that comes through faith in Christ Jesus and depends on faith. That's nothing new. That's the gospel. Uh, unless you're brand new to this church, you've heard that over and over. And yet for Paul, it's everything. It's not just the beginning of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. It's what he's building everything on. This is the gospel. It's the amazing announcement of God that all our brokenness, all our selfishness, our rebellion, our foolishness, it's all taken care of when we have faith in Jesus' exclusive ability to take care of it. As long as we deny or minimize our sin, we're utterly lost in quicksand. Whenever we try to build our way back to God's good graces with our own best efforts and our most flattering features, we're building on rubble. It's junk ground. But when we reject all of that and when we set our hopes on the noble character of Jesus and the sufficiency of his life and his death, then we're going to find ourselves on solid ground. Jesus lived a truly righteous life so that he could never be accused of dying as a punishment for his own sins and so that he had a, a record of righteousness that he could share with us. Jesus died on the cross according to the plan of God so that he could satisfy the justified anger of a holy God against the offensive self-centeredness and self-sufficiency of the people that he really created for his own glory. Those of us who believe and, and trust in this promise, we're saved from our sins. 
To be saved from your sins mean, means you're given a new life that you can enjoy forever with our God. But Paul didn't just note the gospel as some obscure reference point. It wasn't just a, just a, a little note in his plans somewhere that got lost as he was building everything else. Paul built everything in his life and ministry around this gospel, around this core truth that it's the righteousness of Jesus, not mine, that matters in everything. The shape of everything that Paul accomplished as a Christian man and as, a, as an apostle, it called attention to the righteousness of God that comes by faith. The gospel never faded away in Paul's memory. It, it never was a mere starting point to his Christian life. The gospel became everything to Paul, and it became even more to him as he pursued knowing Jesus more intimately. Um, back to verse 1. Paul started this section by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He said, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. It's as though Paul's telling these people. He spent time with them. He taught them. They obeyed in his presence. They knew the gospel. It's as though he's saying to them, I know you guys know the gospel, but it's, it's, it's not hard for me to write it to you again. It's, it's not... And it's good for you. It's good for you. It's, it's safe for you. If you want to be well spiritually, if you want to continue on with a healthy Christian life, then, then we need to keep telling each other this gospel. We need to remind each other of it because it alone can serve as the solid ground that we build on. This can be so easily taken for granted. And... And this was my experience. Um, I don't know if some of you have been here for more than six years. And you remember me before I left. I have no idea what I looked like to you then. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> but my, my thoughts, my ideas of what we would accomplish as a new church, how, we would, how well we would care for each other and love each other, how, how uh, we, would, we would penetrate the Plastow community and begin to reach people for Jesus and, and just expand the kingdom. I had so many, so many um, vibrant thoughts about how that would go. And, um, and we really overlooked, I did, I overlooked what, what it was really going to take to see that happen. And it began to show up in very painful ways. It showed up um, in every family that you guys commissioned, our whole team, household by house, household, began to experience the cracks in the foundation. Somehow we were able to hide here in a larger assembly. We, we weren't exposed. I don't know. But when you got us into that context where everything was on us every week to, to lead and to care and to try to try to bless each other and, and we realized that we came up short and it took a while for that picture to become clear but eventually it did and God was gracious he reminded us of what what was going to heal us what was going to what was going to build us back up and what was going to enable us to begin to hope for the things that we had first dreamed about and it's Jesus it's the fact that Jesus came for those very sins. Jesus came for those very weaknesses. The things that we had so carefully hidden from each other before that, those things, they were okay to come out because Jesus died for them. It's hard. It's hard when you have practiced uh, putting your best foot forward to acknowledge that you don't have any good feet to put forward. And to start to look to the gospel and just and, and do the same thing week after week. Just look at one another and tell each other the gospel again. And let that spark a new wave of worship. Let that spark a new, a new, um, uh, a new moment 
of love for each other, to care for one another the way Jesus did, to begin to see each other not as, not as a, uh, a vindication of our goals and plans, but to see one another actually as people that were valuable because Jesus gave himself for them. And to begin to see the outside community in that same way. Not as, not as people to, to conquer and dominate and add to our kingdom so that we looked good, but people who need the same healing that we'd begun to learn about. Um, it's not your fault that we went through that. We, we've preached the same gospel to each other for years, for decades, 50 years this gospel has been preached. Paul had to learn at some point that that's all it could be about. And that's what, that's what we're learning. And I, I'm sure that's what you're learning at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You loved us in ways that um, don't even make sense. Lord, you don't need us. You don't need our praise. The love that you have within yourself, Father, Son, Spirit, is more than satisfying to you. And yet, yet you let your love spill out and overflow into a created humanity uh, that you're redeeming for your own glory. And here we are, Lord, just just rebellious, wayward sheep who need the shed blood of Jesus to be cleansed, to be healed, to be brought, brought near. Lord, thank you that we can stand before you, not on our own two feet, but stand on the, the holy ground of, of Jesus' cross and resurrection. And so we take our shoes off, we take anything, Lord. Tell us what to peel away, and we'll throw it away if it's in the way of us glorying in Jesus. Pray that you'd continue to teach us this day by day. Lord, help us as Christians, as, as, a, as a, a body, as, a, as, a, as the people of God, help us to encourage each other and give one another the freedom to come clean of the things that we glory in and give us the grace and the clarity to hold up Jesus to one another. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father all your life long, but especially on the cross. Thank you for, for giving up your life as a servant to us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking this truth, this wonderful announcement of God's blessing, of his peace toward his enemies, and for applying that to our hearts with power. Thank you for giving us strength to believe Thank you for peeling away our sins one by one and showing us um, how Jesus is, is more sufficient than anything else that we cling to. Pray that you'd um, bless our time of fellowship uh, this afternoon. Thank you for the lunch that we can enjoy. Uh, encourage us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.